friends, and welcome to part three of Shackleton's Lost Voyage. This was supposed to be the final episode in the series examining the true story of the lost trans-Antarctic expedition, but all in all, part three was shaping up to be about three hours long, so I split it in two. I thought you'd all enjoy two more relatively long episodes rather than one massively gigantic Death Star-sized saga. So this will be part three of four, and since I don't want you all to have to wait too long for the finale, I'll post part four next week, circumventing the normal bi-weekly schedule so you can all hear what befell our favorite lost crew stranded out on the Antarctic ice a week sooner. It has been quite the journey. Part three and four are the most epic episodes of this series, and I'm so excited to share the rest of this story with you. Last time, our stranded but resilient crew was still living on their ship, the Endurance, which had become irrecoverably trapped in the Antarctic pack ice at the onset of the long polar night, where they didn't see the sun for 79 days. Eventually, instead of loosening to make their way clear, the pack ice began to slowly crush their ship to pieces, forcing the men and the dogs to abandon her. Shackleton then decided it was time to move, so they packed up their sledges, had to say a heartbreaking goodbye to their cat, Mrs. Chippy, several puppies, and Sirius, their favorite dog. After somewhat recklessly leaving several thousand pounds of their supplies, including food rations, at the site of the crushed ship, the crew marched on the most difficult, grueling physical struggle of their lives, hauling their remaining supplies and dogs over the ice, trying to make it to Paulet Island, where Shackleton knew there were rations that had been left there from a previous expedition in 1902. But the huge pressure ridges of compacted ice and deep snow that just wouldn't stop falling made their way impossible, and they only made it a mile and a half in six days. Forced to take up camp where they were, and having to now retrace their steps for the supplies they had left behind, our crew spent the next two months living at Ocean Camp, an impromptu setup on the pack ice. It was at Ocean Camp that finally they watched their ship sink to the bottom of the Weddell Sea. With morale dropping and the summer beginning to make their life on the ice even more precarious, Shackleton ordered them to move. Once again, they were about to leave a great deal of their supplies, believing they would find rescue by the end of summer, and would be able to sustain themselves and their dogs on the meat of seals and penguins. Every one of them ate as much as they possibly could of the rations they were leaving behind. They ate like kings for two days, savoring every bite, knowing it would be a very long time until they would see this kind of food again. Then, they harnessed their remaining dogs, loaded their sledges with their three whaling boats, each about 22 feet long, because they knew now that hitting open water was probably inevitable. Given that the Weddell Sea could easily take down 500-ton steamer ships, taking to the waves on what could be the roughest sea in the world on something the size of a lifeboat was a sobering thought itching in the backs of all their minds. But they had no choice. It was move or die. Let's see what happens next and join our crew at the bottom of the world, stranded on a frozen sea of ice. I'm your host, 
Kristen Robine Terpstra, and this is the History Cache. Let's have a look inside. They slept by day and marched by night because these slightly lower temperatures made the surfaces they were covering just a bit harder, and there's nothing like heavy, wet snow to make hauling thousands of pounds of gear absolutely grueling. And night may not be the best word to describe when they were marching because it was the end of December and the sun never really set. A pale half-light, like you see in the rest of the world right before the sun rises fully, was the darkest it got. The dim light would reflect over the snow, lending a glowing shimmer to everything. It was called the Midnight Sun, and is something most people never get to see. It must have lent a truly eerie but strangely comforting element of light to their exhausted, overworked bodies and minds. Shortly after they left, Shackleton wrote a message and tightly sealed it in a corked pickle bottle. It merely said, all well. It was dated December 23rd, 1915, and signed Ernest Shackleton. He did this in secret, as he didn't want the crew to believe he wrote it because he thought they weren't going to survive. He gave the message in a bottle to Worsley, his ship captain, and instructed him to quietly return to Ocean Camp and leave it there. At the end of a day's marching, after a cold, rationed meal, they would fall to sleep in exhaustion. One day, it took them five hours to cover 200 yards, or 182 meters. They were suffering from severely cracked lips, and not long in, one of the dogs fell lame and had to be shot. As you can imagine, the conditions while moving and camping each day were not easy. They were constantly wet as their body heat and sweat was melting the snow as it fell on them. There was no way for them to dry and they would crawl into their reindeer skin sleeping bags, soggy each night, which were also wet. They marched with Shackleton in front, scouting out the easiest routes, leading them around the huge pressure ridges that had thwarted their last attempt at finding an escape route. After him came seven sledges pulled by dog teams. These had to be quite some distance apart as the dogs were unruly and the teams would fight if they came too close to one another. Behind them was a smaller sledge pulled by two men, Ordelis, the shopkeeper, and Green, the cook. They were moving as carefully as they could pulling the cooking gear and the blubber stove they had made out of an old oil drum behind them. Their faces were constantly covered in blubber soot from marching with the stove, a messy layer of oil that refused to wash off easily. Behind them were the 17 remaining crew members pulling the boats led by Worsley. They undoubtedly had the most difficult time of anyone, the boats were so heavy and the ground so uncooperative that they were physically only able to pull them about 300 yards or about 275 meters at a time before having to stop and recuperate. The runners, which is what the boats were sliding on, would keep freezing to the ice and breaking them free was a constant agonizing battle. 
They were wearing Burberry Durox boots. These had leather foot casings that went up to their ankles, followed by gabardine that went up to their knees. Gabardine is a durable twill-woven fabric and was stronger than regularly woven fabric. These boots were designed for walking on ice, but the snow went over their knees and it kept working its way into their boots and melting, filling them with water. This added an extra seven pounds on each of their feet, and with every step they had to lift their waterlogged boots out of at least two feet of slushy snow. On top of this, the snow would periodically hide a hole in the ice, and every so often one of them would start to fall through, only to be pulled to safety by their crewmates. According to Lansing, whose book Endurance was my most invaluable resource for researching this series next to Shackleton's own book titled South, all they had to look forward to after each long day was a meal of cold seal steak and tea, nothing more. Although moving like this was hard and arduous, Shackleton wrote that the crew was in high spirits, happy to finally be on the move again. The long hours of monotony at ocean camp had given the crew too much time to mull over just how uncertain their future was and how much they missed home. Shackleton gives a quote in his book, but doesn't attribute it to any specific person. He just wrote, quote, one man wrote in his diary, it's a hard, rough, jolly life, this marching and camping, no washing of self or dishes, no undressing, no changing of clothes. We have our food anyhow, and always impregnated with blubber smoke, sleeping almost on the bare snow and working as hard as the human physique is capable of doing on a minimum of food." Unquote. We don't know who Shackleton was quoting here, and that's a bit fishy, because according to the accounts recorded by Lansing in his book, in which he interviewed the surviving crew members and was given access to their diaries, this was an extremely difficult moment in the journey for everyone. And we see some hints of a small mutiny here. Shackleton chose what he wrote down in his book carefully. He wanted the rest of the world to see this failed expedition that he was the leader of as a successful survival story. And it is in many ways, but he leaves things out too. Things that we know transpired, and he's very good at skimming over the mistakes he must have come to regret later. Like leaving thousands of pounds of food and supplies because he didn't think they would need them or because he believed they would reach older caches of supplies that they wouldn't even get close to finding, or that he ignored warnings that his plan was flawed and too audacious, or that he was told he should wait one more season before leaving, as the pack ice was some of the worst it had ever been on record. And he doesn't write about what happened next, and I almost missed it in my research. Lansing touches on it for a couple of pages, but I think even his account might not have everything there, and I'll explain why. What Shackleton didn't mention, and what Lansing did, was that shortly after Christmas, on a day that was particularly hard and on the heels of other days that had brought everyone to the edge of what they could endure, someone was ready to give up. The further they marched, the more obvious it became that they were headed nowhere, and finally, Henry McNish, the expedition's carpenter, had had enough. He and Shackleton had clashed before, at least McNish had been upset when Shackleton had ordered his much-loved cat, Mrs. Chippy, to be shot after the endurance had been crushed, 
and he would never forgive Shackleton for it. He had also argued that sledging everything over the ice was going to be futile. Shackleton hated it when anyone questioned his authority. And when McNish sat down in the snow and refused to go on, things came to a head. It had been the worst day that they had seen. They were surrounded by huge, impassable pressure ridges, and the crew was having to carve pathways through the ice eight feet in diameter just to inch the boats through. This could only be done by laboriously chopping at the ice with axes. In two hours, they had covered less than a thousand yards, or 900 meters. Exhausted and frustrated, McNish turned to Worsley, who was leading the bolt haulers, and said he was no longer under any obligation to perform any duty, as the articles he had signed agreeing to serve on board were now null and void since the ship had gone down. McNish's outlook had been deteriorating, and I can certainly understand why. The expedition was a failure, and they could have been back home and famous by now, but instead they were hauling thousands of pounds of gear over an impossible ice scape to nowhere. And as each day passed, it became more and more likely that they were never going to see home again. Top that off by having to eat cold seal meat every night because your boss made you leave too much of your food behind, and I imagine that made for an awful outlook on their life, their situation, and everything in between. Plus, it was Christmas, and that probably made the homesickness they were feeling paying just a bit harder than normal. Obviously, there was no real way to give up. They were as in the middle of nowhere as any person had ever been, standing on top of a frozen ocean. No one could come to get him just because he didn't want to go on. He had to keep going, or he had to die. There was no in-between. But McNish was breaking down and wasn't listening to anything Worsley had to say, so Shackleton was notified of the situation. Shackleton left the head of the march, which was now at a standstill, and very forcefully explained to McNish that a special clause had been inserted into his contract, which he had signed, stating that not only was he to perform on the endurance, but also on the whaling boats and on shore as directed by the, quote, master and owner, which was Shackleton. And Shackleton made it clear that they were now, by his definition, on shore. According to an article on this event by The Independent, Shackleton may have even brandished a pistol at McNish in his anger. After this explosion, Shackleton walked away, leaving McNish to come to his senses on his own and realize there was literally no way out. When they began their march once again, McNish returned to his position at the stern of the boat sledge. That night, worried that McNish had stirred up similar feelings of mutiny in the others, Shackleton gathered the crew together before they were allowed to go to sleep, and read them aloud the articles they had all signed. Shackleton did not write anything about this in his book, didn't mention it. In his personal diary, he wrote, Everyone working well except the carpenter. I shall never forgive him in this time of strain and stress. And he never did forgive him. The Polar Medal, which is an honor to receive, was instituted in 1904 for the members of Scott's first expedition to the Antarctic. Before that, it was called the Arctic Medal, 
it is awarded by the Sovereign of the United Kingdom, in this case King George V, it was awarded to everyone in Shackleton's expedition except for four men, as Shackleton objected to their receiving it. These men were Vincent, Holness, Stevenson, all three employed as trawlermen, and McNish. I don't know why Vincent, Holness, and Stevenson were not awarded the medal. They were laborers, and I know Vincent was described as a bully, so maybe it had something to do with their performance or the way they worked with the other crew members. But McNish, at the end of this story, is one of the only reasons anyone made it out alive. Not to give too much away, McNish would later devise his own mixture of flour, oil paint, and seal blood to caulk the side of a lifeboat, as well as fit it with additional planking to make it safe for travel. On top of this, he would craft crampons out of leftover brass screws that proved to be lifesavers. If he hadn't done these things, the bodies of all those men would be frozen somewhere in the ice. Shackleton even wrote later of the work McNish had done for the lifeboat, saying, quote, We certainly could not have lived through the voyage without it. Unquote. Even knowing and acknowledging that McNish had made their escape possible, Shackleton still denied him the honor of the Polar Medal. It seems like knowing that someone saved your life and still denying them a huge honor you gave to almost everyone else just because he bruised your ego when he was at the breaking point of physical and mental stress is a petty thing to do, and it's something that has tarnished the historical reputation of Shackleton for many people. There are even people to this day trying to get McNish awarded the Polar Medal posthumously. These efforts have yet been unsuccessful, but a bronze statue of McNish, along with a bronze Mrs. Chippy the Cat, has been erected over his grave, which you can still find in New Zealand. McNish's grandson was quoted as saying the statue was a fitting tribute, but that, quote, I think the cat was more important to him than the Polar Medal, unquote. He really, really loved that damn cat. The next day, the march continued on. The conditions of the ice were getting worse. The sun, though it had brought them a respite from what had felt like an eternity of darkness and given them renewed hope, was now making their way dangerous. The ice was getting thinner and breaking up formerly sturdy flows into a precarious landscape, deteriorating at a rate that they could not keep pace with. Shackleton and Hurley took a dog team to a nearby large berg and climbed to the top. What they saw made their hearts sink into their empty bellies. There was no way forward. Broken ice flows and pressure ridges drifting on the cold sea made progress impossible. They would once again have to stop, find an ice flow that could hold their weight, and camp. They had made it nine miles. 14 kilometers. Launching the lifeboats now and making for land was also impossible, as the wooden vessels would be crushed by the ice in minutes if an attempt was made to navigate through. They would just have to wait for a navigable route through the ice to appear before making their escape to open water. 
and just hope that the flow they were on would hold until an escape route appeared, if one ever would. The crew was dismayed when Shackleton gave them the news. When they were marching, even though it was horribly grueling, they were at least doing something. They were at least actively making their way to the possibility of rescue. Now they were stranded again, and there was nothing they could do about it. Shackleton wrote in his diary that night that he couldn't sleep. He was anxious, and he saw their making camp as a retreat, and the responsibility of leadership was weighing more heavily on him now than ever. And that night, the flow they had chosen cracked. They didn't lose anything or anyone, but it was an ominous omen reminding them of the sea that lay just underneath, waiting to carry them down just as it had their ship. They moved all of their things 150 meters toward the center of the flow as there were no others of adequate size or thickness to hold them. Shackleton sent two dog teams out to search for possible escape routes, either over the ice or through to open water. They returned later that day, having found nothing. Even if they had, chances were they wouldn't have made it anywhere before the ice melted underneath them, and they probably would have starved before that even happened. Shackleton wrote that, at the rate they had been marching, it would have taken over 300 days to make it to the closest land on foot. They had enough food now for 42 days. It was the last day of 1915, and the most dismal ringing in of the new year any of them had ever experienced. I couldn't find in any of the sources that they even celebrated the holiday. This seems understandable, as time was not their friend. And for all they knew, they would have been celebrating the marking of a new year that was to be their last. They had spent the previous new year on their ship, feasting and writing in their diaries of how full the future was for them. The new year hailing in 1916 was a starkly different affair. They named this new place, quite aptly, Patience Camp. Their position was worse than it had been at Ocean Camp, especially since Shackleton had ordered them to leave so many supplies behind. He sent two dog teams the nine miles back to Ocean Camp to retrieve some of the supplies he had left there. If you remember, this is exactly the same thing he had to do after they had set up Ocean Camp, when they had to go back to the crushed ship to retrieve supplies he had forced them to leave there. Shackleton is lucky that Antarctica allowed him the luxury of making this mistake twice. The dog teams returned with 130 pounds of dried milk, 100 pounds of dog pemmican, and with a few rations of jam and some tins of meat. He would send them out again two more times. On the second trip, they would bring back some rations as well as some books, because everyone had nothing to do but consider their situation, which was getting worse day by day. And boredom was a tear in the fabric of their morale, and time was pulling that thread of sanity, bit by bit, with every long, painfully empty, lonely day. The third time they tried making it back to Ocean Camp, they only made it about a mile and a half before having to turn back. The ice was unstable, the hard surface was sinking, and the way behind them was now swallowed by the sea. Their biggest problem now was food. Even with the rations they were able to bring back from their last camp, 
They didn't have nearly enough to sustain themselves for more than a few months, and by now, they were only eating about half of what they needed, and they were feeling it. They were weak, unable to perform tasks that would have previously required minimal effort. Every day, they were sent out hunting, looking for penguins and seals, but for some reason, they were finding unseasonably few animals to supplement their diets. Because of this, the makeshift stove they used for cooking was running out of blubber to keep the fire lit. This meant that they were only given one hot beverage a day now, and were having to drink ice water to satiate their thirst. Being half-starved, stranded, lonely, and weak in the coldest place on Earth, the fact that they had to stay alive by drinking ice water seems like a particularly cruel turn of fate. Shackleton estimated that they were eating about half of what they needed, but realistically, they might not have even been getting that much. According to a 2014 article from NPR, someone standing around unmoving in outdoor conditions in Antarctica needs 5,000 calories a day to stay healthy, and 6,500 plus if they're moving around, doing things like hunting or hauling sledges or running dog teams. I'm gonna get a little sciency on you for a second. Humans are homeotherms, or warm-blooded animals. That means we regulate our body temperature internally. The benefit to this is that we don't have to rely on an outside source like the sun to regulate our temperature for us, the way that cold-blooded animals like lizards and snakes do. The downside is that being a homeotherm is incredibly expensive energy-wise. Up to 80% of the calories we burn every day just go to regulating our internal temperature. We can't get too hot and we can't get too cold. And staying at that optimal 98.6 degrees Fahrenheit or 37 degrees Celsius takes a lot of effort. When we get too hot, we increase our blood flow, especially to our limbs, in order to dissipate heat at the surface. After that, we diffuse heat through the evaporation of liquids in our sweat, which helps cool us off. When we're cold, we constrict our blood vessels to conserve our internal heat, or if that fails, we begin releasing waves of muscle contractions. This is what shivering is, and this results in a five-fold increase in metabolism. That takes a lot of calories to maintain. Under normal conditions, the average human male needs about 2,500 calories a day. The crew was basically living outside in the coldest place on Earth, sleeping in wet tents right on the snow, and every day they were out exerting themselves, desperately searching for food. This was not a sustainable way to live, and if Antarctica didn't give them something and soon, they were going to start dying. Macklin wrote in his diary that they may, quote, have to undergo some of the trials of Greeley, unquote. He was referencing the expedition of Adolphus Greeley, where he and his crew spent three years on the ice from 1881 to 1884. Seventeen of the 24 crew members on that expedition would die of starvation before a relief ship could reach them. So they knew exactly how dire their situation was, and hunting not only helped to occupy their time, but helped them feel like they were taking action in an otherwise unactionable situation. One day, when returning from a hunt, Ordelise, the crew's shopkeeper, went from being the hunter 
to being the hunted. He was skiing back to camp on the rotting surface of the ice when suddenly the head of an animal broke through from underneath the ice in front of him. It was the spotted blue-gray and black-eyed head of a leopard seal. Leopard seals are designed for speed and predatory efficiency. According to the Australian Antarctic Division, they can reach up to 25 miles per hour, or 40 kilometers per hour, in the water. The males are usually smaller than the females, which can grow to over 500 kilos, or 1,100 pounds, reaching length of 3.5 meters, or 11 and a half feet. Their mouths are full of extremely sharp teeth, and they can open their jaws to an astonishing 160 degrees, enabling them to grab onto large prey. When they grab a hold of an animal, they shake it back and forth the way a dog would until its skin is ripped from its body. Then they eat the bloodied corpse. They will eat just about anything they can sink their teeth into, including other seals. When he saw what was in front of him, Ordelise shouted for Wild to grab his rifle, then turned on his skis and fled as fast as he could. The huge animal smashed through the ice and began chasing him. Leopard seals are incredibly fast in the water, but clumsy on land. Even still, the creature was gaining on Ordelise, and the gap between them was closing. Then the seal did something odd. It smashed its way down underneath the ice, retreating back into the sea. Feeling like he had escaped with his life, Ordelise was about to cross over onto a more solid flow. Before he could reach safety, the seal once again burst through the ice right in front of him. It had been tracking him, following his shadow beneath the ice, hunting him from below. It opened its mouth, full of teeth, and lunged right for him. Ordelise dodged and screamed the primal scream of an animal that knows it's about to die. The seal lunged totally out of the water again, giving chase. Just before its mouth closed on Ordelise's flesh, Wild took a shot with his rifle. And missed. But the noise of the rifle broke the animal's concentration, and it turned then from hunting Ordelise and began running straight for Frank Wild. Wild shot his rifle and the bullet did nothing to stop the giant seal. He fired again, and again, finally falling down to one knee as the creature rushed for him. Just before it reached him, mouth opened unnaturally wide. It fell, succumbing to the gunfire. Both men were saved. Attacks on humans from leopard seals are extremely rare, but they do happen. There is even a confirmed recorded fatality. In 2003, an experienced diver and Antarctic researcher was killed by a leopard seal after she was dragged 200 feet beneath the ice. It happened suddenly while she was snorkeling at her study site in the bay adjacent to Rothera Research Station on the Antarctic Peninsula. Although her team was able to retrieve her from the water, after an hour of resuscitation attempts, she was tragically pronounced dead. 
It was an awful and unexpected tragedy. Both Ordelies and Wilde were extremely lucky, and both were inordinately close to being the first confirmed leopard seal fatality. But what had moments before been a horrifying encounter was now a life-giving boon. They recorded the animal at 12 feet long and 1,100 pounds, or 500 kilos. If their measurements were correct, that would make it one of the largest leopard seals on record. In its stomach, they found balls of hair three inches in diameter, the digested remnants of a crab-eater seal it had eaten. The jawbone was nine inches across and was given to Ordeliz as a souvenir of his close encounter with death. While the leopard seal brought a moment of jubilation for the crew, Shackleton seemed inches away from a nervous breakdown. The day after the leopard seal was butchered, four crab-eater seals were shot and brought back to camp, another life-saving windfall. While they were being butchered, Ordelese returned to camp excitedly, telling the others that he had killed three more and they were ready for the teams to go gather them. At hearing this, Shackleton told them that the seals they already had were enough for a month and ordered the newly killed seals that had just been shot by Ordelese to be left where they were. He was telling these starving men that they had to let over a thousand pounds of food rot. This was, for lack of a less candid word, stupid. The crew was understandably confused, as Shackleton's decisions about leaving food behind had all backfired and caused a great deal of suffering for all of them. Greenstreet wrote about this in his diary, stating that refusing to let the crew gather the extra seals was, quote, rather foolish, as things have not turned out at all as he has estimated up to the present, and it is far best to be prepared for the possible chance of having to winter here, unquote. In his book, Lansing writes about this, saying that, quote, the basic egoism that gave rise to his enormous self-reliance occasionally blinded him to realities. He tacitly expected those around him to reflect his own extreme optimism, and he could almost be petulant if they failed to do so. Such an attitude, he felt, cast doubt on him and his ability to lead them to safety. Thus, it was that the simple suggestion of bringing in three seals could be, to Shackleton's mind, an act of disloyalty. At another time, he may have overlooked the incident, but just now he was hypersensitive." Unquote. Preparing for a longer period of time and making sure the crew had enough food made Shackleton feel like the others were doubting him. In other words, if Antarctica didn't kill them, Shackleton's ego probably would. I'm not purposefully trying to be hard on Shackleton, and perhaps my bewilderment at his decisions are due to the fact that I've never been in the position he was in now. I have well over a hundred years of research to help me see what he should have done, and he did not have that luxury. I've never been in that strained of a leadership position, and I think most of us probably never have or ever will. His outright denial of their situation and refusal to prepare was his way of emotionally dealing with an extremely stressful situation that he felt was on his shoulders. And it was on his shoulders. They were there in that specific predicament because of the decisions he had made up to that point. That had to be an almost impossible set of emotions to grapple with. What incredible, crushing pressure that must have been. 
But his denial of their situation was dangerous, so things were only going to get worse now. The seals thankfully gave them an extra store of meat, as well as blubber. Not long ago, the crew had abhorred the taste of blubber. Now they craved it, and couldn't seem to get enough of it. When you're starving, you'll eat anything. One man was found chewing an old dirty cloth that the cook had thrown outside because it had a splattering of some burnt dog food on it. Another man had searched through the snow for over an hour, looking for a piece of cheese the size of a thumbnail he had dropped there by accident several days before. Upon finding it, he declared it had been well worth the trouble. Marston, the expedition's artist, was, unfortunately for him, the plumpest man in the group, and so was often the butt of cannibalism jokes. Apparently the jokes became constant and rather dark. They would offer him penguin bones and tell him he was not to lose too much weight since they would be eating him first. Eventually he started avoiding the rest of the group altogether. Everyone was on edge, and things that they used to enjoy now seemed annoying. Once, the men would beg Hussey to play his banjo for them. Now they were going crazy listening to the same six songs he knew how to play. McNish wrote hearing the same tunes over and over again was becoming torturous. And I have to admit, I love the banjo, but hearing the same six banjo songs for a year and a half? Well, I can see how that might start to drive you a little crazy. So even music wasn't helping now. Living in such close quarters with conditions such as they were, unable to leave the company of anyone else or have privacy of any kind, understandably strained relationships. Every little idiosyncrasy of personality that would have gone unnoticed a year ago now rankled the nerves of everyone else. Macklin wrote in his diary one day at patient's camp, quote, Clark has an almost intolerable sniff. He sniffs the whole day long and almost drives one mad when one had to remain inside with him. Lees and Worsley do nothing but argue and chatter about trivial matters, and the rest of us can do nothing to escape from it. Lees at night snores abominably, and also Clark and Blackborough, but not so badly. At times like this, with Clark sniff sniffing into my ear, my only relief is to take up my diary and write. Sometime later, he wrote, All around us, we have day after day the same unbroken whiteness, unrelieved by anything at all. Unquote. You can almost feel the frustration leaking out of those diary pages written over a century ago. The long days were becoming excruciatingly boring, and coupled with the diet of mostly seal meat and watered-down powdered milk, everyone was ready to break. One day, Macklin started an argument with Clark over something that would seem pointless on any other day. The heated discussion spurred Ordelese and Worsley to start a fight of their own. In the midst of all the shouting, someone accidentally nudged Green Street, causing him to spill his cup of powdered milk, the last thing he had to look forward to each day, as their tea and coffee rations were now long gone. Green Street, seeing this as a tragedy almost too immense to endure, then whirled on Clark, who he blamed for nudging him. Green Street's voice broke with emotion, and he tried to catch his breath, causing everyone to stop shouting and watch in silence this defeated man, beard-coated with frozen snot and spittle, face dirty, body eaten away by hunger, 
staring down at his spilled milk on the ground, trying everything he could not to just break down and weep in despair. Without saying a word, Clark, who had been the target of his anger just a moment before, reached out to Green Street and poured some of his own milk into Green Street's cup. And then, one by one, all the other men did the same. I think this is the most heartfelt moment I have come across in researching this entire story. There was just so much camaraderie and shared trauma among this crew that even at the limits of human endurance, they could still show this kind of kindness to one another. Most of us will never experience this kind of deprivation and desperation. And it heartens me to know that even then, a group of human beings stranded and hungry at the bottom of the world could show that level of compassion to one another. It gives me hope. If anything was going to get them out alive, it was going to be their ability to suffer through all of this together. Every episode I've done in this series has involved some sort of dog tragedy, and I'm giving you a heads up now that this one is about to as well. Skip a few minutes ahead if you can't watch All Dogs Go to Heaven, because almost all of the dogs are about to go to heaven. A rumor began to spread throughout the camp that Shackleton was going to order all of the dogs to be shot. Just about everyone was upset when they heard this. The dogs had been a constant source of companionship, and taking care of them had brought joy to everyone. They loved these dogs. They had already had to shoot some of them, the puppies no less, when they had left their crushed ship months ago, and that had been a dark day. The thought of losing their dogs would have been hard under any circumstances, but the outrage they were feeling at the idea was only heightened by their present situation. Macklin wrote about his favorite dog, Gus, who he had raised since he was born. He would put him as a puppy in his pocket when he was out, and Gus would look out at the world with wonder and excitement while cuddled up in his coat. The rumor was true. Shackleton was considering killing the dogs because of the food shortage they were experiencing. This only reminded the crew that their lack of food was due in large part to Shackleton's short-sightedness in leaving rations behind and leaving the seals Ordelese had shot. Green Street wrote in his diary, quote, The present shortage of food is due simply and solely from the boss refusing to get seals when they were to be had, and even refusing to let Ordelese go out to look for them. His sublime optimism all the way through being, to my mind, absolute foolishness, Everything right away through was going to turn out all right, and no notice was taken of things possibly turning out otherwise, and here we are." Unquote. To their relief, that morning Shackleton didn't mention anything about the dogs. He simply ordered the crew to shift their camp's position to the flow, since it was rapidly deteriorating. The soot from the blubber stove had been tracked all over the ice, and it was causing the heat from the sun to melt everything at an increasing rate. But that afternoon, Shackleton ordered all but two teams of dogs to be taken out behind a nearby pressure ridge and shot. The dogs were taken one by one, and none of them seemed to understand what was happening, so none were distressed. 
At least, that's what the accounts say. And as a dog lover, I'm going to believe it for my own sake. Death was instantaneous for all but one dog. Walking among the bodies of their beloved animals, Macklin was horrified to find one was still alive. He immediately pulled out his knife and stabbed it repeatedly, intending mercy, and feeling the strain and sadness of everything with each blow. Two dog teams were spared, as they still needed some dogs to help bring in food, but the crew knew that their time would come too. They had been at Patience Camp now for three months, and the entire time they were there, drifting in boredom and hunger, no path or opportunity had presented itself as a viable escape route. They were drifting, and there were even a few days where gales with 70 mile per hour winds helped push the pack ice, but the outlook remained dismal. And the ice was getting thinner. They had to make sure each tent was far enough away from the others so that their joined weight wouldn't crack the flow, sending everything into the sea while they slept. Then one morning, Shackleton awoke early to walk alone in the morning fog. On a melting flow, you can only walk so far, so when he reached the edge, he just stared out thoughtfully into the distance. Just then, the fog parted, and it took him some time to realize that the black shape in the distance wasn't ice or one of the mirages they so often would see, but land. Solid, safe, real, otherworldly land. He ran back to camp and alerted the others. The reactions were mixed, some were excited, it was the first land any of them had seen in 16 months. Others, not believing that spotting a bit of land, however far away, would mean anything for them, simply remained in their tents, uninterested, until the sighting was confirmed to be true. They were seeing the tip of the Palmer Peninsula, 57 miles, about 91 kilometers away. By then, they must have been wondering if anything existed anymore in the world but ice, snow, and sea. I can't imagine that feeling they must have all had glimpsing the solid element of Earth as they stood on the flow melting beneath them. No doubt, some had resigned to never seeing such a sight again. Although land itself was a comforting, familiar sight, it quickly became apparent that they could not reach it. If Shackleton had ordered the boats to be launched, they would be shattered to pieces in minutes by the pack ice, which was still not relenting them away through. All they could do was stare at the solid ground, a mere 57 miles away, and ponder their helplessness. So they drifted on, and it was just another day after all. The food situation was now dire. They had about a week left of blubber supply, for breakfast, they were each given a ration of cold dog food and half a ration of powdered milk. If the day was particularly cold, they were given a couple lumps of sugar to help them keep warm. The last of the dogs were now subsisting only on the leftover scraps of animal innards the crew could not eat. For lunch, they had one biscuit and three lumps of sugar. Dinner was either a cut of seal meat or penguin hoosh, a mixture of penguin meat and melted snow. There was no ration of water given to anyone. If they wanted to drink, they had to fill their empty tobacco tins with snow and wait for it to melt against their bodies or inside their sleeping bags. This usually afforded about two sips of fresh water at a time. 
Trigger warning, the rest of the dogs are about to go to heaven. Game was scarce, and they had no luck in hunting, so they turned to the last source of meat so many lost explorers have had just before they've had to resort to cannibalism. Their dogs. Before he ordered the dogs shot and butchered, the crew begged Shackleton to let them try once more to retrieve the stores they had left back at Ocean Camp, nine miles or 14 kilometers away. They knew that right there on the pack ice waiting untouched were 700 pounds or about 317 kilos of dog pemmican and 60 pounds or 27 kilos of flour. All of it had been left there at Shackleton's order now four months ago. He refused. The ice was just too treacherous for anyone to make the journey. In fact, the flow they were on was the last large piece of pack ice in any direction. And it was getting smaller. So the dogs were shot and eaten. Afterwards, two seals were spotted in the distance and the crew roused themselves to bring them in. But the ice was too thin and the hunting party couldn't get to them. On their way back from the unsuccessful hunt, Ordelis collapsed from hunger. After several minutes, he was able to stand on his own and slowly make the rest of the way back to the tents. Then it began to rain. It reached 33 degrees, a little over 0.5 degrees Celsius. The rain soaked everything, and their now wind-torn tents were not much of a shelter. Everything and everyone became soaked. Macklin wrote that he used his boots to catch leaks and was constantly having to empty them out. Others were using their food cups or old tobacco tins or anything they could find to do the same. No one left their tents for the rest of the day. And that night, as they lay trying to sleep in their soaked reindeer skin sleeping bags, the flow, thinned by the warm water, finally cracked. It took only seconds for everyone to be alerted. They rushed to the James Caird, one of the lifeboats, and pushed it to the center of the flow. Their meat stores were floating away, having been stored on the other side of the crack. Losing this meat may well have meant death, and several of the crew leapt across the open water and threw the meat back over to where the rest of the camp was, risking their lives to do so. Within the hour, everything had been collected and accounted for. By then it was time for breakfast, and while they dined on dog food, several lumps of sugar, and a half mug of milk, the flow cracked again, right underneath one of the lifeboats. Instantly, they scrambled to the boat and were able to save it by pulling it back to the center of the camp. A few days later, this would happen again, and a crack would break the flow a mere two feet from Frank Wilde's tent. The flow they were on, once a mile in diameter, was now only 200 yards, or just over 180 meters across. It had never been more apparent that their days were numbered. Just as everything seemed truly hopeless, someone spotted a moving shape in the distance. It was a leopard seal, 11 feet long. Wilde immediately grabbed his rifle, dropped to his knee, and took a shot. His aim was true, and 1,000 pounds, or just over 450 kilos of meat, had been secured. It felt like a miracle. 
Inside the seal, they found nearly 50 undigested fish. These they saved for the next day, and they were a welcome new flavor in a diet that had become monotonous. Only a few days later, on McLeod's 49th birthday, another leopard seal poked its head out from under the ice. McLeod, maybe because he was going a bit mad by now, or maybe because it was his birthday and he was feeling confident, strolled up to the seal and began flapping his arms about as if he were a penguin. This apparently convinced the seal, which then crashed through the ice and gave chase. Wild then grabbed his rifle, took aim, and secured them all another thousand pounds of meat. It was a happy birthday for Mr. McLeod. The acquired meat gave a much-needed boost to morale, but the situation they were in was sobering. They were drifting with the pack ice closer to land, seabirds were sighted now, and Clark, the expedition's biologist, even spotted a jellyfish between the flows, signifying that an ice-free opening was near. But there was still no opening for the boats, and it was their hope that the winds would push them with the pack ice closer to land, at which point an opening would appear, and they could all escape to solid ground. A four-hour watch was set up so that someone had their eyes on the ice at any given time in case another crack split the flow or a way to open water granted them the brief opportunity of escape. Shackleton did not want to leave the flow unless it was absolutely necessary. The boats stood no chance against the pack ice, which could crush a full-sized ship as if it were made of glass. If the flow broke, they would have to take to the boats. Maybe they could make their way to a large iceberg and pitch camp until a way opened to land, but even that had little chance of success. Almost all of their conversations now were about wind and drift. The only islands in their path now were Elephant Island, which was unexplored and had never even seen a footprint, or Clarence Island off of the Palmer Peninsula. Apart from these islands, all that existed was South Georgia, where a whaling station existed, but that would mean sailing these 22-foot boats another 800 miles in one of the world's roughest seas. If they drifted too far out, there was simply nothing left but open water. With all of this weighing on their minds, the flow split again, cutting the size of their flow in half. Openings in the ice began to appear, opening then closing again without warning. Shackleton wanting to take advantage of any opening and resigning himself to the fact that there was no way out now but by sea, had them pack up their camp and stash everything in the boats in case an opportunity presented itself. While packing everything into the boats, another crack split down the flow right beneath the spot where Shackleton's own tent had been mere hours before. Shackleton wrote of this in his account, saying, quote, the crack had cut through the sight of my tent. I stood on the edge of the new fracture and, looking across the widening channel of water, could see the spot where, for many months, my head and shoulders had rested when I was in my sleeping bag. The depression formed by my body and legs was on our side of the crack. The ice had sunk under my weight during the months of waiting in the tent, and I had many times put snow under the bag to fill the hollow. The lines of stratification showed clearly the different layers of snow. How fragile and precarious had been our resting place, yet usage had dulled our sense of danger. 
the flow had become our home, and during the early months of the drift, we had almost ceased to realize it was but a sheet of ice floating in unfathomed seas. Now our home was being shattered under our feet, and we had a sense of loss and incompleteness hard to describe." Unquote. Shackleton knew he had to make a decision. The flow was breaking all around them. All eyes looked to him, all of them thankful the call was not theirs to make. He looked to the open ocean where the ice was opening just enough to tease the possibility of escape. In a low voice, he gave the order, launch the boats. The crew packed everything they could, climbed into the three boats, and shoved off the floe that had been their home for over four months. As they sailed out into the unknown open water, the ice closed the way behind them. The message was clear. There would be no turning back. Although the ice they had been living on at Patience Camp for the last four months had been a melting time bomb, it had felt like solid ground and had given them the illusion of safety. Now, out in the water with the waves undulating and the boat rocking, that illusion was gone. They had not felt movement like this since they had become stranded in the Endurance in December of 1914. It was now April of 1916 and the crew, weakened by a rationed diet and rusty on the water, were clumsy with the oars. They couldn't keep from continuously colliding with the pack ice or seem to find a synchronized rhythm for rowing. The sides of the boats had been reinforced and raised to prevent the cold spray of the sea from soaking the crew, and although the seats in place to accommodate the four rowers were stacked with supplies, the seats rested too low to make easy use of the oars. It was an awkward escape from the ice. Despite the immediate difficulties, the crew began working together, chanting stroke, 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 helping the rowers in all three boats to find their rhythm. Although the pack ice was still all around them, it was navigable, at least for now, but they knew it might not stay that way, so they rowed as hard as they could for open water. Within a half hour, the pack became mercifully loose, and they had lost sight of Patience Camp as it quietly blended in with the rest of the ice behind them. Although they had felt a pang of serious loss when they had lost their ship, and even felt some heartache when they had left Ocean Camp, no one seemed to really miss Patience Camp. It had been where their morale had darkened, where they had experienced the greatest pangs of hunger, and the place where doubt the thought that they would never make it out of this alive had slowly worried a hole into the backs of all their minds. They were thankful it was now just a bad memory. And now they were moving, actively making their escape. Although they were unsure as to exactly where they were going, they were giving it their all to get there. Shackleton was hoping they could sail to Deception Island, where there were stores left for marooned sailors, the waters were treacherous, and shipwrecks were common enough that supplies were, at least according to Shackleton's notes, left on the island in perpetuity. There was also a whaling station there that operated in the summers, and Shackleton was hopeful it was still open for business. 
They were near the Bransfield Strait, and Deception Island was too far west. Although they had oars, they were still very much at the mercy of the current and the wind. It became clear that Deception Island would be unreachable. That left them two possible options. The first, which is what they were striving for now, was Clarence Island. And if they were blown off course, they would try for Elephant Island. By their calculations, Clarence Island was only 39 miles, or just under 63 kilometers away. There were a couple of things that worried Shackleton about both of these options. First, neither had ever been explored. No one had ever set foot on either of them by 1916. They were on charts and maps and had names, but no one really knew what was there, and it was extremely doubtful anyone would get close enough to them to see a stranded, shipwrecked crew waving for help. Also, if they didn't reach either of these islands, there would be no more chances of rescue. These were absolutely the last pieces of land that all three of those small boats could reach. If they missed them, they were done. And no one would ever know their story, how much they had been through, how hard they had tried. And with every oar stroke, they were throwing the dice, placing all their bets on Clarence or Elephant Island. As they rode, the pack ice cleared somewhat, and they began to see the life that surrounded them. There were whales crashing out of the water, apparently alarmingly close to the boats, and there were birds everywhere. The birds numbered in the thousands, and the crew had to cover their heads as their droppings were falling from the sky and landing on everything. These poor guys just couldn't get a break. Now they were hungry, weak, lost, and covered in poo. There were orcas, too, and as I discussed in the last episode, in 1916, everyone still very much believed that orcas were hungry for humans, so they kept a wary eye on them, although unnecessarily. The boats themselves had been reinforced by McNish, and all three were equipped with small sails, the Wills had one small sail and a jib. The Docker had a single sail that always ensured it was the slowest and last boat in line. The Caird had two sails plus a jib and was the fastest of all three, so much faster that it was constantly having to be held back in order not to outdistance the others. All three of these small boats had been designed for whaling. They were all around 22 feet long and made of oak. The Caird was made partly of American elm, which reduced its weight and increased its speed. Although they were sturdy, none of them were equipped for what they were being used for. Capsizing and being crushed by the ice were constant fears. The Bransfield Strait they were in now is to this day a harrowing place for any ship. Cross seas are common. This happens when the current is pushing the waves one way and the wind is pushing the waves in another. This can cause waves up to 10 feet high, which could easily capsize a small boat. It's a gorgeous sight and makes the water look like a checkerboard of perfect squares. But if you ever find yourself in the water and you see the waves around you turning into squares, get out as fast as you can because a deadly wave is probably coming right for you. Aside from the danger of a cross sea, the worst thing that could happen now would be for one boat to lose sight of the other two. 
If this happened, there would be no way for the lost boat to find its way back to the others. This was well before even radio on ships like this were reliable, and all they had to communicate with were hand signals and shouting as loudly as they could. To ensure the boats would stay together, the crew would need to pitch camp each night on an ice floe, or if they had to, an iceberg. This would ensure no one would wake up having floated away from the rest of the crew. This first day had proven to be a good one. They were able to navigate through the ice with relative ease. They had made progress, and with the exception of one large wave that had given everyone a good scare, they were all accounted for. By 5 p.m., the light began to fade, and Shackleton decided it was time to camp for the night, eat and rest. A half hour later, they found an ice floe about 180 meters across, which looked sturdy enough to hold them all. The swell was surging, and they had to make several attempted approaches before they landed, and the boats were hauled up onto the ice floe. Pulling the boats from the water was difficult, but it would ensure that all three boats would still be there in the morning. The stove was set up, and they each had a helping of dog food, along with two biscuits. The tents were pitched, all but tent number five, which had become so tattered and useless that Shackleton allowed its usual inhabitants to sleep in the boats. Right after they all retired, the watchman cried out that there was a crack in the flow. After an exhausted scrambling of bodies, it had proved to be a false alarm. I can imagine that having had their last camp crack in half over and over again until it was no better than sleeping on a pane of glass over a frozen sea must have been quite traumatizing. Any watchman would have been on edge, seeing shadows of fissures where there were none. Our minds are wired to keep us alive, so when we hear a bump in the night, even though 99.99% of the time it's nothing, our minds trigger us into a state of fear. I can only imagine this sense of survival would have been heightened in the minds of our wind-torn and hapless crew. Maybe it was this wired-in fear that caused Shackleton to leave his tent at 11 p.m. that night, an anxious feeling so poignant that he had even dressed himself first. He said it was a sense of uneasiness that drew him from his sleeping bag and out alone onto the floe, now shrouded in darkness. It was snowing, and between the snow flurries, he saw the stars were now in a different position than they had been, a sign that the flow had swung around and was now posed dangerously against the swell and vulnerable to strain. He began walking toward the night watchman, intending to encourage they watch carefully for any cracks. Mid-stride, the flow lifted on the crest of the swell and cracked right beneath his feet. He moved quickly as the crack was widening fast. He looked ahead, following the fracture with his eyes, and saw to his alarm that one of the tents was perched right on top of it. Then he heard a splash. He ran, rushing for the tent and yelled to the eight men still inside, asking if they were all right. No, came the disheartening reply. Someone's missing, he heard a voice say. Someone had fallen through. Seven men scurried from the limp canvas and Shackleton teared at it, throwing it to the side. He threw himself down at the edge of the still widening crack. 
He heard something in the water. It was the muffled, gasping breaths of someone fighting to stay alive. He saw a shape in the water, a man trapped inside a sleeping bag. It was Ernie Holness, one of the laborers, and he was trapped inside. Shackleton grabbed him and with one mighty, adrenaline-filled pull, heaved him from the water, saving his life. Seconds later, the swell caused the two halves of the flow to collide with sickening force. If Shackleton hadn't acted as quickly as he did, Holness would have been crushed. There was no time to rejoice in the rescue of the freezing and soaked Holness, because the halves of the flow were separating rapidly once again, quicker now, and the men that had been in Shackleton's tent were on one side, and everyone else was on the other. A rope was pitched to Shackleton and the others who were now drifting away, and with everyone pulling as hard as they could, they were able to bring the smaller half close enough for everyone to jump across to safety. Everyone but Shackleton. Shackleton's flow was breaking away again, and they all pulled as hard as they could to bring his flow close enough for him to reach the others, but with only Shackleton pulling now from his side, the rope was useless. He lost his grip, the force of the swell ripping the rope from his hands, and Shackleton drifted away, alone, into the darkness. I wanted to take a moment to thank you for listening to the History Cash podcast. You have many thousands of podcasts to choose from, and I am massively appreciative that you've chosen to listen to mine. I also want to thank everyone who has followed the show and taken the time to write a review. It has definitely helped to make the podcast more visible. If you're interested in further supporting the show, you can become a patron at patreon.com slash historycashpodcast. You'll get access to a members-only feed, a shout-out on the show, and access to any future members-only bonus episodes I do. I do this podcast because I want to make history accessible to everyone and bring you the stories of those that have come before us to life in a way you may not have experienced in history class. A history podcast as intensively researched as this one takes an ungodly amount of time and energy to produce, especially since I'm doing it all on my own, and knowing you're out there listening makes me feel like it's all worth it. So, thank you, from the bottom of my heart. Now, back to the show. Shackleton wrote of this moment later. He wrote, For a moment, I felt that my piece of rocking flow was the loneliest place in the world. Floating out there in the dark where no one had ever been, hearing the voices of his crew become fainter and fainter, that must have been a truly helpless moment. But Frank Wilde came to the rescue. Shackleton heard his second-in-command shout, Launch a boat! Half a dozen of them scrambled into the wills, pushed off into the water, and began looking through the darkness for their leader. After three long minutes of not knowing if he would ever be found, the boat reached him, and he was carried back to the flow, which was now only about 200 feet across. When they returned, it was obvious there would be no sleeping for anyone. Their adrenaline was pumping, and they were all on edge. 
Holness was literally freezing, and the others could hear the crackling of his clothes as they froze onto him. There was no change of clothes and nothing dry to put him in. If you remember, Holness was one of the four crew members that Shackleton would deny the polar medal to. He was walked up and down the floe by the others to keep him from freezing to death. As he mumbled to those around him in a shivering voice, all he seemed able to say was how he had lost the last of his tobacco in the water. In the morning, the sky was gray and the air hazy and cold. They couldn't see the outline of either Clarence or Elephant Island. No horizon was visible through the thickness of the fog. During the night, the swells had carried large chunks of ice surrounding their small floe. Shackleton once again made them leave food here, several cases of dried vegetables. He also ordered them to leave ice picks and tools, believing this would lighten the load of the boats. It's almost frustrating now when I read about how he was still, as they were starving and not getting enough calories, ordering them to leave food. Every single time this has backfired. Every time. Worsley estimated that they had sailed about seven miles the day before, and that Clarence Island had to be about 30 or 40 miles away. Though the ice had clustered around them during the night, they were able to navigate through without incident. The crew was not used to rowing, and by now their hands had started to blister, biting at every stroke. Although the sides of the boats had been altered to keep them safe from the spray of the sea, they were still constantly bombarded by the water crashing against them. The wind blew, howling in gusts that cracked their lips, made the coldness of their water-soaked clothes seep through to the bone, and their blistered hands frostbitten. But by mid-morning, the ice began to clear, and they realized that for the first time since they had become stranded, they had hit open water. The exhilaration of being free from the ice for the first time was quickly overridden by the harshness of the open waves. The ice had acted as a barrier to the wind and the rolling waves. Now, without the buffer of ice, the wind whipped harder and the waves undulated the boats up and down and up and down, causing some of the crew to become miserably seasick. The boats had also begun to take on water at an alarming rate. The wind and waves crashing on the sides of the boats was becoming dangerous, and Shackleton had to finally order everyone to retreat back to the protection of the ice pack. Feeling it was better to navigate through the ice as long as it was somewhat manageable, instead of risking capsizing in the open water. The ice would slow them down, but it was, for now, the safer choice. By now the crew was exhausted, and the light was starting to fade on another day. Shackleton wrote of how anxious he was. He looked at his crew and saw how worn and strained they were. He wrote of their eyes and eyelids, and how they had become glaringly red from being constantly whipped with sea spray. Their beards had all turned white from the salt, and their lips were painful cracks of salted skin. He wrote of being envious of two seals he saw lounging on an iceberg as if it were just some normal, joyful day, free of stress and the pressure of responsibility. He wrote, quote, I do not think I have ever felt the anxiety that belongs to leadership quite so keenly, unquote. They were all looking to him constantly to get them out of this, and truth be told, he didn't really know how. 
He had some ideas, he sort of knew where they were, but this area was vastly unexplored, many of the islands having never suffered the presence of a human being. And there was no guarantee that the wind and current would cooperate. They very well could overshoot those islands completely and find themselves stranded in open ocean, longing for the once hated monotony of their camp on the ice floe. As they were searching for a place to camp that night, they had a peculiar experience. There was an old berg they sailed by, and it sounds from Shackleton's account that they were starting to experience some mental strain on par with the physical stresses they were experiencing. He wrote, quote, at the head of an ice tongue that narrowly closed the gap through which we might enter the open space was a wave-worn berg shaped like some curious antediluvian monster, an icy Cerberus guarding the way. It had head and eyes and rolled so heavily that it almost overturned. Its sides dipped deep in the sea, and as it rose again, the water seemed to be streaming from its eyes as though it were weeping at our escape from the clutch of the flows. This may seem fanciful to the reader, but the impression was real to us at the time. People living under civilized conditions, surrounded by nature's varied forms of life, and by all the familiar work of their own hands, may scarcely realize how quick the mind, influenced by the eyes, responds to the unusual and weaves about its curious imaginings like the firelight fancies of our childhood days. We have lived long amid the ice, and we half unconsciously strove to see resemblances of human faces and living forms in the fantastic contours and massively uncouth shapes of berg and flow." Unquote. And now it's time for the psychologically nerdy portion of the show. What Shackleton is describing here is actually a fairly common phenomenon called pareidolia. It's something we're all prone to, especially in times of stress. Pareidolia is a psychological phenomenon that causes people to see patterns in random stimulus. And very often, this leads to people assigning human or subhuman characteristics, very commonly faces, to objects. This can also occur with sound. Images and clouds, the man in the moon, a chicken nugget shaped like George Washington. That one sold on eBay for 5,000 pounds, by the way. All of these are examples of pareidolia. There is good reason for pareidolia to exist. According to Dr. Nushin Hajikani of Harvard University, humans are pre-wired from birth to detect faces. She says that even a few minutes after birth, a baby will direct its attention to something that has the general features of a face versus something that has the same elements, but in random order. And our tendency to spot familiar figures in things goes back to the first humans. Our brains had to learn to think quickly, and much of the times our brains know what they're looking at. But other times, according to Christopher French of the British Psychology Society, our minds can be systematically based. If you're stuck in the Ice Age and you hear something behind you or see a shape forming in the dark, it's much better for your mind to decide it's a saber-toothed cat quickly so you can just get out of there, just in case. Our minds are always looking for patterns. Patterns are comforting. We're constantly sifting through random shapes, surfaces, sounds, colors, and textures. Our brains make sense of what we're seeing by assigning meaning and images to things, even if those things appear vague. Our brains will match up a vague image with something it's more familiar with, like a face. 
And once you see an image in something, it's almost impossible to unsee it. According to neuroscientist Sophie Scott of University College London, pareidolia can also be a product of our expectations. She explains that our minds want to see things like faces, we want to hear things like voices, and our perceptual system will set out to do that for us. So Shackleton was right. They did want to see some resemblances of human faces and forms. And with how exhausted they were, it's no wonder that their minds would see some sort of ominous, threatening figure inside the ice that they had been trying so hard and so long to escape. With the light fading and their bodies begging for rest, they spotted what they described as a flowberg. It was about 35 square yards, or 32 square meters, and rose above the water about 15 feet. The water had eroded the size and left an overhang of ice. Shackleton did not want to repeat the horrors of the previous sleepless night. He decided that they would spend this night on the boats. In order to ensure no one would float off into the night, they hammered the oars into the sides of the ice for anchors and lashed the boats to them. Right as they finished lashing up the boats and relaxing into an agitated form of rest, the wind picked up, causing the waves to rock the boats with increasing violence. They had lashed the boats too close to one another, and they were banging against one another, shaking the oars that had anchored them to the flow. The wind was also causing snow from the berg to fall down into the boats and cover everyone in a cold slush. This was obviously miserable, and no one could sleep like this, so after about a half an hour, Shackleton unenthusiastically ordered everyone to begin setting up camp on the ice. This meant lifting all three 22-foot boats up onto the berg. The overhang of ice made this gruelingly difficult. During the whole ordeal, Stevenson, one of the other men who would later be denied the Polar Medal, fell into the sea and had to be rescued. No one had really slept by this point for 36 hours. All that mattered to anyone was sleep, so after their ration of dog food, powdered milk, and two lumps of sugar, they crawled fully dressed into their sleeping bags, which they soon realized had been soaked completely through by the spray of sea and snow. My brain can't even find a way to comprehend how horribly miserable these poor people had to be. It was vicious hardship after vicious hardship. It almost seems like a cruel test thrown at them just to see how much a human being can take before they simply just die of misery. And it wasn't over. Before dawn, they knew something was wrong. When the light stretched slowly over the sea, they saw that, once again, the night swells had surrounded them with pack ice. But this time, there was no getting through it. The water was too rough and the chunks of ice too big for the boats. They would be crushed if they tried making their way through it. So they had to wait, and as they waited, the berg they were on began to break. Huge chunks were falling off the sides and into the water. If it continued to do so for much longer, the berg would break, and they would fall into the sea, and they would drown. If they got in the boats and sat there to wait it out, the pack ice would crush them, then they'd sink, and then they'd drown. It turns out that Shackleton's order to camp on the berg had probably saved their lives. They would have been crushed if they had stayed in the water, and with how long it took them to haul up the boats, they wouldn't have had time to escape onto the berg. 
so that was a good call. Macklin later recounted that, although the sight of an icy expanse in every direction probably meant their doom, he couldn't help but think it beautiful. He said the lines from Tennyson's poem, Mort d'Arthur, kept rolling around in his head. I never saw, nor shall see, here or elsewhere, till I die. Not though I live three lives of mortal men, so great a miracle. To be able to appreciate the incredible beauty of a landscape that just might kill you by the end of the day takes an exceptional mind. Or maybe he was just so numbed with trauma by then that he had reached a whole new level of consciousness. Either way, I think his thoughts then were courageous. Shackleton perched himself on top of the highest point of the berg and the crew packed up camp, ready to go at a second's notice. There were many false alarms when Shackleton would believe he saw a path in the ice opening, only to shake his head after seeing it close again. They stayed like this with the ice falling into the sea around them. They tried making jokes to stave off their fear, but their humor seemed forced. A blunt, flimsy weapon against the reality of the situation. They waited all day. When there was about three hours of daylight left for them, a freak current pushed itself up from the bottom of the sea, and inky black water began to appear as a path before them. Launch the boats! came the command, and all hands hurried to them, pushing the boats off into the water five feet below them and jumping down as if from a house caught on fire. They rowed with everything they had, and the ice before them seemed to miraculously cooperate as they made their escape. Another close call. Another day. As they were sailing, Worsley estimated that the strong winds that had been blowing in from the northeast had pushed them to within 80 miles, or 128 kilometers, from King George Island. Shackleton decided right then that King George Island, with its stores of rations and seasonal whaling station, would be their new target, and a renewed sense of hope tingled throughout the crew. To make speed, Shackleton ordered the sails hoisted on all the boats, this made for a hodgepodge of awkward sailing as the carriage sailed beautifully, but the wills lagged behind. The crew in the docker had to go retrieve her and tow her back to the caird, which was now waiting for the rest, docked by a nearby lee of ice. When they were all rejoined, Shackleton told the crew that they would not be camping that night. Both times they had tried, they had nearly met their deaths, so from now on they were to row throughout the night. Two men at a time would row, and the shifts would be quick, as the only way to stay warm was to keep moving. There was no rest for the others. There was barely room for their feet in the boats, let alone a place to rest. The temperature was down to minus 4 degrees Fahrenheit and minus 20 degrees Celsius. Their clothes froze onto them, thawing where cloth met skin, and if they moved, it would expose the warm spots to the biting air. When they weren't rowing, the crew would talk in low voices to the others nearest them, voicing their hopes and thoughts and staring at a sky that stayed clear most of the night while the soft snow fell, covering them all in a layer of white. At 3 a.m., Hudson began yelling that he spotted a light coming from the northwest. The others excitedly roused themselves before realizing there was no way anyone else could be out there. They settled back down angry at Hudson, who was equally angry that no one believed him. 
In the morning, Green the cook stepped onto a flow and set up the stove to cook everyone some hot milk and hoosh, that soup of meat and snow. While they ate, they waited anxiously for Worsley, their navigator, to configure their position. He took out his sextant, and all eyes watched him as he plotted his lines for a fix. He looked confused, and he recalculated their position again and again, but it didn't matter how many times he worked his calculations out, it wouldn't change the reality of where they were. He looked up from his figures and told them that they were now 124 miles east of King George Island and 61 from Clarence. That meant that they were 22 miles or 35 kilometers further away from land than they had been when they had left Patience Camp three days before. They had been going in the wrong direction. That is where we're going to leave part three this week. Next week, I will have for you part four, the epic finale in one of the most incredible survival stories of all time. Until then, if you want to get a hold of me, you can do that at historycashpodcast at gmail.com. If you're enjoying the show, please consider following and rating the show wherever you listen. If you've already done so, I can't thank you enough. Listeners like you are the lifeblood of this show, and as an independent podcaster doing all this on my own, knowing you're out there hearing this history makes all the long hours worth it. If you want to help support the show, you can do that at patreon.com slash historycashpodcast. Your donations go directly to helping me research and produce this podcast. Things like hosting fees, music licenses, books, and other research materials. And even if you're just here to listen, thank you for spending time with me and giving me and this show a chance. I've been your host, Kristen Robine Terpstra, and until we meet again, sweet wandering podcast listeners of Time, Adventure, and Lost Antarctic Tabby Cats, go make some history.